0: Thanks, Matt. Good morning, everyone. Uh, the last time I was here, you were doing three services still, so I am very excited to be back during a two-service weekend, uh, but still have the same amount of people. It's not that I wasn't happy to see one of the services. It's just nice uh, to have a room that feels so full and excited and full of energy like this one is. Uh, I'll be in First Corinthians 13 with a little bit from the end of chapter 12 as well. Uh, Matt has told me you are heading back into a Hosea series. You've left behind what you did over the Christmas season with a very angelic series, I was told. Uh, but I've been given my choice of text for this week, and so I'm taking us back to one that may be familiar for us from some contexts, but I think has a lot of uh, really valuable things for uh, for us, no matter where we find ourselves in our Christian lives. Uh, So you can begin to turn there, I'll have those texts and other ones that I read on the screen behind me as well. Uh, A couple of years ago, I uh, was playing soccer and I tore my ACL. It's a very significant injury. Uh, I was actually playing on a team with Jonathan, he was there when it happened. Uh, It's the kind of surgery that, or uh, the kind of injury that requires a fairly invasive surgery. Uh, And that's a surgery which then requires a very extensive rehabilitation. Uh, and that rehabilitation, though it uh, has grand aspirations for what it can accomplish, begins very small. Small enough that I found it to be uh, what felt like an exercise of frustrating futility. Because the first exercises you do in the first weeks after a surgery are so small, they feel like they accomplish nothing whatsoever. Uh, one of them was as you're sitting there with your leg iced and elevated. Tense your quad muscle 10 times. Do three sets of this. That was the entirety of the exercise. Another one, slightly more strenuous, was stretch your calf muscle for 10 seconds. Do this 10 times. Do three sets of this. There was a significant gap between what a normal, healthy person could do and what a freshly surgered person could was able to do, and that gap led to significant frustration for me. I was used to being able to do things like walk and kick a ball and even run a little bit, and instead I was forced to, to be sat on my couch for far too long doing far too little, so it felt. The reason that I found that frustrating was because, as I'm sure many of us do, we tend to measure physical health by the, by the most extreme thing we can do. Right? I used to be able to run 90 minutes and play a soccer game, and now all I can do is sit here and wiggle my legs. We look at the bigger thing and say, that is the mark of true physical health. But I don't think that's only true of us physically. I think that's true of us spiritually as well. When we want to think about what does it look like to be a healthy, growing, mature Christian, we look to the remarkable. We look to people who have their, their spiritual habits ingrained deeply in their lives. We look to people with uh, remarkable public giftings, people who are maybe extremely generous or who are willing to suffer as we look at examples of Christians around the world. And while all those things are good, they are not the essential thing to the Christian life. What, what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13 is he takes the attention of the Corinthians, who are these people focused on the big and the dramatic and the remarkable, and he points it back to the basics. He brings them back to what is most important in the Christian life. And his basic message to them is that they are to live a life of love. That's at the heart of what it means to live as a Christian. So that's the main point I'll be making this morning. We are to live a life of love. And I will be making this argument in a way that mirrors the way that Paul makes his argument. He gives us a reason, an explanation, and then a reason. So I'm going to do the same thing. We should live a life of love because love avoids a wasted life. Then I'm going to explain how Paul shows us that love is a way of life. And then I'll look at how Paul says that love is for eternal life. So that's the general structure I'm following, and I I trust that you'll see that as we read the text together. So I'm going to begin looking at how love avoids a wasted life as I read from the end of chapter 12 into verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul begins, I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So there's a reason I chose to include uh, the end of chapter 12, just a fragment of verse 31, and it's because in it we see Paul is setting up a contrast. He says, I will show you a still more excellent way, and the more excellent way is something that is better than what he just finished talking about. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul has just spent time correcting the many ways in which the Corinthians misunderstood what spiritual gifts supposed to do in the life of the church, speaking in tongues, receiving prophecy from God, all of these sorts of things. Effectively, what Paul is saying by finishing chapter 12 in this way is even if you get all of this stuff about spiritual gifts right, that doesn't necessarily mean I have shown you yet the most excellent way you are to live. That's what chapter 13 is all about. Chapter 12 was corrective. Chapter 13 is clarifying. And what he goes on to do is, is he goes on to talk about all of the remarkable things you could do which are worth nothing if you do not do them in love. And as we read verses 1 to 3, he says some fairly remarkable things to make that point. He, he begins by talking about spiritual gifts, right? He talks about uh, speaking in the tongues of men and angels, uh, languages you don't know or angelic worship Languages, And then he talks about uh, having remarkable knowledge given to you by God. And he says, if you have these things but you do not have love, what you say is just noise. It doesn't actually bear much significance for the life of the church. But then he goes on and, and he broadens it a little bit. He talks about having faith which can move mountains and, and insight into all kinds of mysteries. Right? He's beginning to describe some pretty remarkable Christian things and says, if you do not have love, those things are worth nothing. And then he steps it even beyond kind of the realm of the spiritual gift and says, even if you give away everything you have, generosity, or give up your body to be burned, you're willing to suffer for Christ, but you have not love, you have done nothing of lasting significance. Uh, This was a a message as I studied this chapter in the last number of weeks, which flashed as a big warning sign to me. The position that I'm in at at Northview has me intently studying the Word of God, training to be a pastor, trying to understand theology, doing my school as I do my work. And so it was a warning to me that, that all of the good things, all the big things that I might be trying to pursue are worth nothing if I do them without love. But Paul wasn't only writing to people who were training to be pastors or to the, to the very serious Christian. He was writing to a very regular congregation, to normal Christian people. And so I think it, this passage ought to stand as a big warning sign to all of us who want to grow as Christians, Around the the New Year's time, uh, we are resolving kinds of people. We set our minds to certain things, whether you're someone who likes to write your goals down or if it's just a passing thought, this year I want to grow in this way. As I've been thinking about the kinds of things that I've thought about this year, how do I want to grow? What would it look like for me to grow as a faithful Christian this year? I've been forced to ask the question in my study of this passage, where does love fall on my resolution list? Because I know when I think about what would it look like for me to grow as a Christian, it tends to be more in the realm of of external things. I want to read my Bible more consistently. I want to pray at least 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes every evening. I want to make sure that I'm at church every week. Paul isn't saying that any of these are bad things or things you shouldn't strive to grow in. He is simply asking the question of priority, which is essential. And the the message that he lays out for us is anything that we do without love is a wasted life at the end of the day. So if you are someone who, who seeks to grow as a Christian, we ought to ask this question, how do I know if I am at risk of living a wasted life? How can I be sure if my life is a life lived in love or not? And thankfully, Paul, after his introduction, launches into an explanation where he summarizes all of these many ways in which we are to think about what love is. He gives us the criteria, as it were, for how we can self-evaluate and see if we are, in fact, living a life of love or if we risk a wasted life. As he lays out for us, that love is a way of life. So I'll read verses 4 to 7 as we think about Paul's description of love. This is perhaps the most uh, familiar part of the passage to us. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. When you and I think about what what do we mean when we say I I want to be a person of love? What do we tend to think love is? What are we trained by our present age to think love is? We think of love first and foremost as something kind of squishy and ethereal, right? Love is primarily a feeling that I have towards another person or another place or another, another thing. Love is something that is just bubbling up in my heart and I can't control it. It happens to me. Uh, Paul lays out a very different picture of what love is. He, he lays out something very clear and very tangible for us to grab hold of. He wants us to know that love is in fact a way of life that you can see clearly. You can understand whether someone is a person of love or not. Uh, he isn't intending to be exhaustive here. There is more you could say about what love is. And the scriptures say many things about what love is. But, but he gives us a very good general description of a kind of life we are supposed to live. And he begins in verse 4 with some positives. Love is patient and love is kind. What Paul is doing here is he is borrowing language from earlier in the scriptures. He is talking about love in light of who God is. He begins with language that is used to refer to the character of God. In Exodus 34, verse 6, Moses has asked if he can see God's glory. And here is the response Moses gets. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, this part in particular, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is slow to anger is another way to talk about patience, right? Love is not quick to get angry. Love is slow to anger and is patient with people who might otherwise cause you to be angry. And then the word kind in English is kind of a soft word, but this description of kindness gets, gets to what Paul is intending here, right? Love is steadfast in its commitment to people. Love loves faithfully. So if we are to be people who are to live lives of love, we are being called to be people who live in line with the character of our God. This isn't just character that God spoke about himself, but it is character that he modeled through his whole life with Israel as a people. So he saved them from Egypt to be his people, and they proved to be a difficult people. As soon as he saved them, they found things to grumble about. On the way out of Egypt, as God had defeated Egypt for them and was leading them away. They grumbled that, God, are you just leading us out into the desert so Egypt will kill us here? And then as he led them through the wilderness, God, did you bring us out here so we would starve? Remember how good the food was back when we were enslaved? They complained about the water. They complained about everything they could find to complain about. And yet God remained slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to a difficult people. He was patient and kind to the Israelites. And it's a good thing he was, because otherwise the Old Testament would be a much shorter story. Because they did not deserve God's patience and kindness in his justice, he could have punished them. But because of the promises he had made, he bore with them. Even when he brought judgment upon them, it only happened when there was warning after warning after warning given. Ample opportunity for them to return and repent of their sins and receive forgiveness and blessings from God. Instead, he proved to be patient and kind with people. This is what love looks like being patient and kind to those who are difficult to be patient and kind to. That's how God was to his people. That's how we are to be to others. Uh, Charles Spurgeon told a story about um, an archbishop in the Church of Scotland, a man who he just calls Leighton. Leighton lived and owned, or uh, had one employee who worked in his house, a fellow named John. Apparently John was a little bit forgetful. So one day, after having worked with Leighton for a number of years, John decided he was going to go take a day to go fishing, which evidently he was allowed to do. So he got up early in the morning, locked the house, went out for his day of fishing. The problem quickly arose, though, that in locking the house and leaving, he departed with the only key to the house. So uh, Leighton, living on his own in this house, only one door, only one lock, only one key, was stuck in his house all day long. John had gone out for a full day of fishing. He left in the morning. He wasn't planning to return until the evening. And I don't know if you've ever been trapped somewhere because of a mistake someone else made. But we can begin to imagine the kinds of things which are boiling in uh, Leighton's heart and mind as he reflects on the many forgetful episodes John has had over the years. All right, John, you've done this before. I asked you not to lock me in my own house before. And yet, here we are again. You had to go fishing. You had to leave so early in the morning. And so I'm stuck here for, for 10, 12, 14, 16 hours, John, What are the kinds of things, if you're in that situation, that you are ruminating over over the course of that whole day? This is before internal electricity. You're working by candlelight. It's cold in Scotland. The only thing that I'm writing down is the speech I'm going to deliver to John when he returns and finally frees me from my prison. What does Leighton do when John, late in the day, finally returns home? I would be delivering my speech before the door even fully swings open. But here's what Leighton says to John. Uh, John, if you go out for a day's fishing another time, kindly leave me the key. Evidently, he had spent a day at home, happy in his study, reflecting over the scriptures and (laughs) praying. Uh, That's the kind of response which grows out of a patient and kind, a loving heart, right? John had made mistakes before. He should not have made this mistake, and yet this was the gracious response that he received. This is what patience and kindness looks like, being patient and kind to people who are hard to be patient and kind to. So maybe you have a child or a grandchild who's living in all kinds of ways that you know they shouldn't be living in. They're living in sin that is bad for them and bad for the people around them. Maybe you have a parent whom you are particularly frustrated with, who has taken advantage of you in your relationship with them before. Maybe you have a coworker or a boss who you know does things that make your job difficult, though they need not do those things. A, a heart of love, a life of love means that we will be patient and kind, even to them. So, if you were to ask those people, how how does How are you treated by me? (laughs) Are patience and kindness high on their list? Because the, the question isn't, are you patient and kind to people who are patient and kind with you? The question is, are you a patient and kind person, even to those who it is hard to be patient and kind to? This is how Paul begins his list, talking about the character of God as the standard of love. But then he turns very quickly and tells us a whole bunch of things which love isn't. Right? Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. What these things all have in common is a self-centeredness. Right? If you are envious, it's because you want for yourself what someone else has. If you are someone who boasts, it's because you want yourself to look better than someone else. If you insist on your own way, we can see how that is a selfish kind of thing. Ultimately, Paul's point here is that love is not focused on what I get out of a relationship. Love is not a self-centered mode of living. These are great things to ask people whom you know. Am I someone who boasts? When you're in a conversation with me, do you know that it's always going to turn back to something new and great in my life? Even if you have something good to celebrate... Do I always want the attention to be upon me? Are you someone who's competitive when you're in conversation with someone? Do they know that if they say something good in their life, you're going to say something better in yours? They have this story, you have this bigger story. They had this experience, you had this more dramatic experience. Are you someone who is envious of the attention others get and so you claim it for yourself? Are you someone who insists on having things done your way? Are you someone who does not like to have things not go your way? These are worthwhile questions for us to ask the people who know us best, to understand if in fact we are living a life of love or not. But Paul continues on, it's not just about how you are perceived by other people, right? Patience and kindness, you know that you're being patient and kind because someone can recognize it. You're being not self-centered because, you know, someone can tell you if you're being self-centered. But Paul is not only concerned with how it, how it is perceived by other people, our actions. He says, love abides by a standard in verse 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love is not an affirmation of all things, but love instead insists on demanding the best for people according to what God has defined the best for people to be. This is the place where Paul's definition of love probably cuts the most strongly against the prevailing thinking in our world, because what we have been taught to think is that if you don't say yes to me, everything I say I am and everything I stand for, not only do you not, but you cannot love me. Paul says this is absolutely out of step with the love that is handed down to us from God in the scriptures. Even as we return to the the model of the character of God, he loved Israel. He bore with them patiently and kindly, but he did not rejoice at their wrongdoing. He warned them time and time again. He stayed with them and continued to provide for them even as they continued to disobey. Even when he brought his wrath upon them, He stayed with them as their God. God walked out that tension of being a patient and kind and loving God while also not rejoicing at wrongdoing. And for you and I, that that is going to be a difficult thing to walk out, but we have good examples of this being done well. We understand that love requires the truth to be spoken. Uh, I am going to talk about something that's true of myself in the past those of you who know me, a few of you, uh, this won't be surprising, but for the rest of you, it is also true of me in the present. Uh, When I was growing up, I liked to annoy people. I was a bit of an agitator. I always played the role of younger brother in whatever relationship I was a part of. Pushing people's buttons was a lot of fun and continues to be a lot of fun. Lord willing, I will find it less fun as I continue to mature. But there came a time in my life where I was doing the kinds of things I normally do to bother and push people, kind of walking right up to the edge of what I knew I should be doing. And this person who was annoying turned to me and said, in in basically this tone of voice, Levi, you're going to be starting high school soon. You're going to say the wrong thing to the wrong person, and you're going to get punched in the mouth. That was the tone it was set in. It was only ever said to me one time. And yet, as I thought about it, as I was preparing the sermon this week, I realized that many of us, if we knew that that was a very real possibility, would be content to say nothing and let Levi learn that lesson on his own, right? We kind of have a sense of, I don't know, we have a bit of a dark justice to us sometimes, That we enjoy. And yet, this person, because they loved me as they did, knew that to speak the truth was a greater act of love than to let me continue on in my foolish ways and receive the just fruits of what I had done. I like to report that though it was only said to me once and was said to me in that way, I, in fact, learned from that uh, corrective experience, and I was never punched in high school for something that I said. But, but the point remains that it is an act of love to speak the truth when someone needs to hear the truth, to not be silent When we want the best for people, we will tell them the truth. And yes, we will do so patiently and kindly. We won't say it at every turn necessarily and beat them over the head with our warnings and our reminders, but we will speak the truth to them. And it requires discernment of when and how to do it. But love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but love celebrates the truth. And if all that isn't enough, Paul gives this really extreme list at the end of verse 7, love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. The, the point of this repetition is that love continues even when it would be easier not to. If you are going to be a person who lives the way of life that is love, it's going to require you to love people when it would be easier not to. As we read this text, as we study this passage, as I've studied this passage for the last number of weeks, what I'm confronted by is that Paul says this is the essential thing to the Christian life and then proceeds to not set up a very low hurdle to clear, but he sets up a high jump bar. He says this is essential to the Christian life and then lays out what is a very difficult life to lead, as you and I, I'm sure, are realizing. I look at this description of love and realize I am not patient and kind all the time. I do not always seek the good of others over the good of myself. There are times where it's easier to say nothing instead of bringing up the the truth in a conversation, though I know someone needs to hear it. And there are times where I do not continue to love because it gets difficult. It's easier to not sometimes. And as I said before, we are resolving people. So there is a, a couple of dangers that we find ourselves in if we misunderstand what we are supposed to do with the passage like this. If we believe, we look at a passage like this and say, I'm just going just gonna to clench my fists and grit my teeth and make myself loving, one of the dangers you run is that you will succeed at it for a while. Over the course of a day, over the course of a week, you'll, you'll force yourself to be more patient, to be more kind, to be less self-centered. And when it goes well, who do you have to praise for that thing? I have me in my own effort, which immediately turns us to people who boast, undercutting the very definition of love Paul calls us to live in. Or the other danger, perhaps the more likely one, is that you will do it by your own effort, but you will struggle. You will look back and see all the ways you have failed to live a life of love. You will look forward and see all the ways you are going to fail to live a life of love, and you will be thrust into a pit of despair. God, why do you place a burden upon me which I cannot bear? Thankfully, this isn't the only place where we learn how we are to become people of love. The scriptures are very clear. If you want to be a person who lives a life of love, you need to go deeper in your relationship with the God of all love. 1 John 4 is an excellent place to go because it connects these dots for us. Uh, John writes in ways where he repeats words and phrases, so I'm going to read it slowly and explain it as I go, as we see how it is we can be people who live this kind of life. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, and here is the reason, for love is from God, And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You need to love if you are someone who knows God, knowing God is what makes you love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Here's how we see the love of God. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Here also we see the love of God. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What John is saying here is that if you want to be a person who lives in love as you ought to, because you follow the God of all love, you need to know that God is the God of love to you. If you want to be someone who grows in patience and kindness, you need to see that God has been patient and kind with you. Not because you were someone who was so easy to be patient and kind with. Not because you did anything to him that made him love you, but simply because he loved you. And when you see God has been like that for you, though you are not someone who is always easy to be patient and kind to You will then see those in your life who are hard to be patient and kind to and you will see yourself in them. Here's how God treated me. How can I do anything less for someone else? You will be able to be someone who is not self-centered when you realize the lengths God went to love you. Around Christmas time, we think about what Jesus gave up to become the savior of the world. Took on flesh, became a vulnerable baby in a manger to peasant parents who were on the run because he loved you. This is what God gave up to love me. How can I do anything less for those in my life? When we see what God has done to love us, sending Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the way our sins can be forgiven. We will see that he not only extends his love for us, but he tells the truth about sin. Sin required a death in our place. So in his love, God told the truth and did not rejoice in our wrongdoing. He bore on himself the penalty our sin deserved while living a life of love at the same time. If you want to rejoice in truth, you need to see what truth required Christ to do. And you can see that God's love to you continues even though you and I stumble and struggle as we seek to follow him. His love continues even when it would be easier not to. We are only able to do these kinds of loving things when we see the kind of loving God we serve. This is what First John is telling us. So, so ultimately, a life lived in love is a gift that's the result of another gift. Knowing God is not something you or I have earned, it is a gift God has given. And as we get to know the God of all love, we become people who then live lives of love. A gift which leads to another gift. So Paul in this passage isn't laying down a burden for you to bear on your own strength, he's inviting you into the natural result of a relationship with the God of all love. So walk in that relationship and ask God would grow you deeper in it. As you read your Bibles, as you gather for worship, as you spend time in prayer, as you serve, as you give, maybe even as you suffer for your faith, ask that in these things God would show you who he is. That you would experience his love for you. And that in doing so, you would become a person who grows to live a life of love that you are called to live as you follow the God of love. Love is for us a way of life. It's a way of life that avoids a wasted life, but it's also a way of life that is for eternal life. Here's how Paul finishes in verses 8 to 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Right after laying out the, the life that we are called to live, Paul gives us one final reason why it matters so much, why it is a good thing to be called into. And he begins first by talking about things which are temporary. He says the spiritual gifts are temporary, returning to what he talked about earlier, because they serve a limited They're like training wheels on a bike. You don't keep them on forever. They serve an important purpose for a while, but you graduate from them. Spiritual gifts are like that. They will become like that because eventually we will not need the help. We will see God face to face. The God of all love we will enjoy a living relationship with forever. Uh, This is not a thing that we understand the weight of. Paul says we will see God face to face. And when he's doing that, again, he's using language from the Old Testament. This was a privilege to see God in a face-to-face kind of way that was restricted to a select few in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 34 ends with this statement in verse 10. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. There's coming a time where we will see God face to face. All of the helps we need in this life will pass away because their purpose will be fulfilled. What they helped us with, we will not need help with any longer. As a glasses wearer, I understand this reality. If I were to take off my glasses while we're singing the songs, I can tell there's words on the screen but I don't know what they are. I need the glasses to help me see. But there's coming a point where we will all get spiritual laser surgery. We will see God rightly and fully. And when that comes, we won't need the helps any longer. But there's something else he says that's unique about love. When that comes... Other things which are essential to the Christian life now will also be done away with. He, he uses one of his favorite triads. Paul talks about faith, hope, and love as the three things which are essential in the Christian life. But he says, even among these three, when you see God face to face, love stands alone. And the reason that he says that begins to make sense when we think about what faith and hope are as opposed to love. See, see, faith is trust in that which we do not see yet. Specifically, it's, it's trust in who God is and what he will do, though he has not yet done it. But when we have seen God face to face, when he has brought to completion all that he has intended to do, we will not need to trust any longer in the way we do now, because we will see what we have been trusting God to do. Our faith will lead into our sight. Similarly with with hope, hope speaks of waiting and anticipation. The Advent season is all about hope, looking ahead, longing for what is to come. But when we see God face to face, what we have waited for will be here. Our hope will lead into our enjoyment of what we have long hoped for. So faith and hope will not continue in the same way as they function now. But love is not like that. Because when you see God face to face, it's not that your love of him in the past becomes something new now, such that love is done away with, but love in the past leads into the fuller love that we anticipate forever. Seeing God face to face, the God who is love, means that love is what eternal life is all about. So when Paul calls us to live a life of love, what he's inviting us into is eternal life in the present. Paul is inviting us to know already what it looks like to live with him for all eternity as we live lives of love today. He makes his love known through the way in which his people love one another. You don't have to wait to die For the joy of eternal life to begin, the eternal kind of life Christians live begins today as we live lives of love. This is why the life lived in love is the one life which is never wasted. Because it's a way of life which leads into and continues through all of eternal life. So go with the love that God gives, that he empowers by his spirit, the kind of love which avoids a wasted life and extends for eternal life and live lives of love now. I'm gonna pray for us to that end and then I believe Matt is gonna come back up. Um, Father, we're we're thankful for familiar texts, even ones that we only hear read at at, uh, wedding ceremonies or, or other kind of special occasions Because in them, there are such riches to what you have done for us because of your love. Uh, Father, we ask that you would impress upon our hearts your love for us, such that we grow to know you to be the God of all love. And as we do so, you make us into people who live lives of love. I pray these things for myself and for my brothers and sisters here. In Jesus' name, by the Spirit's power, amen.